right, this is a long one. Pause if you're black, that's what she said if you're white. So, uh, speaking of black and white, the facts are as they are. Uh, I'm a black semi-professional freelance rap writer slash journalist. David Drake is a white professional rap writer slash freelance journalist. You know, the facts as they are. So as not to mince words, America has a historically fucked up way, if you will, of rewarding certain people over others, okay? I'm not here to give you a history lesson today. Uh, What I'm here to say is there was a point, I don't know the exact year, some point over the past few years where... I can't ever say I've been bitter about writing. Yeah, I have no bitterness in me about the uh, writing business. I'm grateful for every opportunity that I've gotten, every penny and shilling and every, you know, every opportunity for exposure. I mean, brief segue uh if someone says write for exposure don't do it uh that probably means they don't value you enough to pay you or it means one of two things they have money and they don't value you or they have no money and it's just a super low bottom of the barrel outlet that you really don't even need to waste your time writing for but all of that aside uh, my, my point is while I've never been bitter there was a point a few years ago where I was making kind of knee-jerk reactions and knee-jerk generalizations about writers that happen to be white I'm, I'm very careful about who I label a cultural tourist and, you know, or, or what might sound potentially racist, like, people's ideas. Like, if, if you're, for example, if you're white and you like Young Thug, more power to you. Uh, I, I don't really, like, I'm, I'm more careful these days or over the past few years than I've been in the past. But all that aside, I've, I've never thought uh, David Drake, you know, was a racist or I've never thought anything bad about David Drake, but I did make the knee jerk generalization at one point where it's like, oh, this guy might be an asshole. Okay. I mean, there are rap writers who are assholes of every race. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to name names today, but there are rap writers who are assholes. Okay. There are rap writers who, you know, who have court cases because they're potentially or alleged to be assholes, okay? I'm rambling at this point, but I was making a knee-jerk generalization that if you're white, you might be an asshole if you write about rap. I mean, there are white assholes. I'm not going to name any names. There are some of them out there. Uh, David Drake, I'm happy to report, is not one of them. He seems like a pretty good guy. I mean, I spent some hours with him. He's, He's a pretty good guy. Uh, based off of our one encounter, very smart guy, a lot of 
things to say, a lot of knowledge uh, dispensed on this podcast. Thank you, David Drake, for coming through. And yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to report that he's one of the quote unquote good guys. I mean, I've come across my fair share of people in this writing game. A lot of them left me with just kind of I don't I don't think anybody's really rubbed me wrong and the people that have rubbed me wrong on the internet I've either not met them in real life or I've met them and they were better in real life than they were on the internet okay so yeah I haven't had any real experiences where it's like oh that person completely rubbed me wrong David Drake is one of the good ones and yeah we recorded this podcast we went to get some pizza then we went to a bar where I think everyone at the table knew me via Twitter or knew me of you know from my past writing we like I'm kind of weird sometimes on a personal level, I'm kind of weird sometimes about telling people my Twitter name because I don't know what they might think of me. Okay. Uh, I am just paranoid sometimes about whether I come off abrasive on Twitter or what have you. But we, we went out to eat to a bar and I met all these people for the first time. I, I had interacted with them on different levels, you know, whether it was tweets or whether it was. Uh, or. or or even if I hadn't interacted with them, they knew of me, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that people are aware of my existence out here. Okay, so it was... I apologize, I don't know the other lady's name that I had a... Like, she kind of got me all set up with the LA Weekly system when I was writing for them. I wrote, like, all of one concert review and one... uh, submission uh to a there was like a you know how this thing goes where there's like an article where they get a whole bunch of people to to say something so i had one article on la weekly with my name attached you can go look if you know my government name you can go find it uh just type that in la weekly i'm sure it'll come up and and then there was like something about producers or something and i think my submission was alchemist Top 10 LA producers, I believe my submission was Alchemist. Uh, so I had that, but then, uh, so I don't remember the other lady, and I apologize for forgetting her name, but uh, Rebecca Haithcote, I believe her name is. I met her that night. Haley Potlicker. Is his name? Not Alex, I'm sorry. Paul Thompson. Um, Haley Potlicker. Paul Thompson. Rebecca Haithcote, the other lady whose name I forgot, David Drake and me. I don't believe there was anyone else. Uh, We all met up. They all kind of knew of me, and here we are. But I left the bar feeling kind of inspired, like, on a level where it's like people know me, people know I exist, and just the the energy felt positive uh, at the table. So it's always good to meet up with new people and feel positive energy uh this is a formal invite i mean i'm sure i'm gonna reach out to some of these people uh you know 
off of the mic, but this is a formal invite. Haley Potlicker, Paul Thompson, you guys are a couple. Uh, Rebecca Haithcote, any of you are welcome to be on my podcast. Uh, to you know, the format is basically you talk about. I interview you about your history and everything you've done, and then you talk about classic music. And the other lady whose name I forgot, I apologize. You're invited as well to do the podcast. I'm just being lazy right now and not looking up her name. But most of all, thank you, David Drake. Uh, pretty good guy, pretty stand-up guy. And thank you for listening. You know, this, again, you know, this is a pretty extensive interview where he said a lot of things he said a lot of words if you need to break up your listening into multiple parts uh feel free and thank you for your time and have a good day peace all right thursday throwbacks i'm here with david drake a man who's kind of in the same Field is me. I'm a freelance journalist. Uh, he's a much more prominent freelance journalist, but uh, David Shrimp of So Many Shrimp. That's it. David, not David Shrimp. David Drake of So Many Shrimp. Uh, Internet like David fans. Shrimp. That works. Uh, say what's going on to the people. Hey, what's up, everybody? Okay, so um, tell me. I guess how did the whole, how did your blog kind of take off? I know you were kind of around the same uh, cocaine blunts era. Around that whole, like, when the internet bubble kind of, the hip-hop internet bubble kind of first broke. You were, like, one of the names that kind of It was at the there. very beginning of uh, hip-hop blogging, definitely. Like, there was a handful, I think, of blogs. It was, like, Jay Smooths, obviously, was uh, big. Okay. Um, Oliver Wang, I think, was the first person that linked to me. He was a, you know, hip-hop writer. Uh, now kind of an academic. Um, and uh, Nas was certainly one. There, there were a few other blogs, but it was very irregular, and a lot of them would only update like one time a day, you know. Uh, it was a very different environment. Um, I sort of did it, there was, so I knew this guy, Serge, and that's who I started So Many Shrimp with. Um, he was out of the Bay Area, uh, and his wife, then girlfriend, was DJ Steph, who's like a really well-known hip-hop DJ from the Bay, like since the early 90s, I think. Um, anyway, he, he and I like got to know each other online. So like, one of the great things about that era of blogs was that you were talking to people from across the country who had completely different perspectives on what was going on in rap music. So you could hear somebody from Atlanta, somebody from the Bay, somebody from uh, Texas, somebody from um, you know Baltimore. Uh, Al Shipley was one of the early okay. uh, bloggers too, because he did government names uh, was his blog, and they, they okay. were, he was out of Baltimore. Another guy that wrote for it was in Canada, and so you get these very different perspectives on what uh, was going on in hip hop that you couldn't get from you know the regular publications, and they, they were always a lot of times there were very unique personalities behind these sites, um, which made them sort of more interesting to me. Uh, but mainly at the time, like I was like trying to throw parties at college, and I liked that I could be up on music before people, okay. because that, that was a time when like a song could break in Houston, and then it wouldn't pop off until uh, you know for six eight months later. But I would have heard it because I was following this guy who lived in Houston, or at the time it was Matt Sanzala who wrote for Murder Dog. Okay, and we could follow his blog, 
and you would know that uh, about the songs that were going to be next way before they actually blew up which for a DJ was like a great thing it was like you could be on like the cutting edge of music and just be a kid in a dorm room you know so that, that was a it was an interesting time to be doing it you had to like opt in it wasn't everybody wasn't online really. right you had to really do work to find this stuff and um, so originally like the original incarnation of so many shrimp I wasn't really bringing that much to the table in my opinion <laughs> uh, Serge did Serge was really in touch with a lot of hip hop stuff and early on it was like I would post stuff that I liked and talk about why I liked it I wasn't a very good writer at that point mm-hmm. um, you know I was young I was like 19 years old 20 years old or something when I started it so like I didn't always know what I was talking about, although I tried, I've always tried to at least write what I know and not try to like project things that, you know, talk out of my ass or whatever, but, uh, you know, I I don't, I think early on I was, I was trying to write well to make up for the fact that I, a lot wasn't going on. Like I could go to hip hop shows locally in in Chicago, but Uh it wasn't the kind of stuff that was going to get people's attention nationally that was going to blow up like it was sort of a a backpack scene where people were very much about being in that community rather than being like I don't think there were people with the ability or designs on becoming huge and Rhymefest was already you know obviously me and friends would see Rhymefest out or something but he was already a controversial like there was a whole controversy about the Jesus Walks uh, being co-written by him and like also at the time like nobody really read our blogs like in terms of numbers so it wasn't I didn't really think that I had that much to add at that time okay but to me it was more like wanting to figure out what people you know what kind of hip hop was going on outside of what the publications were coming Okay, and how did you get to be... Fast forward to 2016. How did you get to be where you are now? Um, it's a complicated, convoluted process. That okay. Basically, uh, I mean, you know, I never did, like, an internship. I didn't move to New York until I was, like, 29, and I only lived there three years. I, I did it, basically, uh, through sort of trial and error, Got it. I think, and... Uh, there's definitely an element of just having been at the right place at the right time, but also being prepared when that time happens. Like when I was in, I was in Chicago when Chicago hip hop started blowing up and I wrote a lot about hip hop and I sort of understood what the, was happening in the conversation nationally and I uh, paid attention to it and I, uh, you know, went out and like tried to interview people and like talk to the people that, um, I'm pretty sure that I did the first the first time Chance the Rapper was ever quoted in a national publication, I think, was when I uh, interviewed him for a piece in Spin in 2012. He's definitely uh, coming up in further discussion in the show. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I did the first interview um, for a national publication on Keefe. Uh, Another one coming up. King Louie, I did the, I'm pretty sure, the first interview with, although maybe Fake Shore Drive had done sort of a small thing before me. I can't recall. At the time, because this was pre-social media, the internet was um, not doing a very good job of covering what was going on. So there's this weird transition period where the publications start to their own websites, right? 
and uh, from like 2000, this is basically when the, the Nah Right, uh, the, the new music cartel era. Mm-hmm. You have these blogs that have taken over because the uh, hip hop press has not figured out how to get online yet and to put their money into being online. Um, and because these are guys that are essentially started out as hobbyists and a lot of them are successful in part because of where they are in the uh, you know they're, a lot of them are New York based a lot of them have ties to industry so they get like exclusives to or you know are able to work their way in they, they start as outsiders for sure but they are have through proximity are able to get like exclusives and these kinds of things they're invited to listening parties um, they sort of are able to set the conversation but aren't necessarily talking about everything that's going on in hip hop you're not getting a lot of the regional stuff that first drew me to the really early wave blogs where you could hear stuff that was outside of the main conversation they're not covering uh, you know a lot of southern stuff um, and even then like what stuff they a lot of stuff that they do push is um, to their tastes, but not necessarily likely to appeal to lots of people. Okay. Um, and it's the other thing that, you know, I was always into criticism, and they aren't doing criticism either. So it's not yep. like they're explaining why you should like. I'm not going to name a rapper that I'd yep. be making fun of, but it's not like they're explaining why you should like this rapper. They're just telling you that this is what's next and you should care about it. And that works when it's true, but it doesn't work when it's a rap blog rapper that There's never just ended somewhere up. to take up space. And there are a lot of those rappers that like got those looks early on and probably still getting them. Yeah, and, and then never sort of took off. And it, like, it's totally okay to be that kind of artist. There are lots of artists that I love who are totally non-scalable artists. Mm-hmm. But then you have to like make this case for them. Got it. Like aesthetically, I think you have to be like, yeah, this guy is not going to be huge, but his music is worth hearing. My favorite example of that is uh, in Chicago is Tree. He's like one of my favorite okay. rapper producers. But, you know, he's not... I mean, I think that if he applied himself the right way, maybe he could make a hit or two, but he's not interested in that, and I think that's totally fine. That's a legitimate uh, point. But then, like, as a critic, it's your job to explain why his music is worth people's attention of course. despite it not being scalable. So anyway, that's like a very long answer. Uh, there, there's there's a lot more like so at the time like 2009 I wrote, I wrote a lot about Gucci Mane because he's coming up too. Yeah, that that was the thing that uh, I was real. It was really big, you know, where I was. I was listening to a lot of it and I thought it was really good and it made me want to like memorize verses again and like figure out how he put words together and the kind of stuff that I liked when I was like a teenager listening to rap. So. Uh, that was like a thing that had gotten attention to me the other thing though is just like I was I've been writing about music since 2004 2005 yep that's when I started and so like that's an element of it too I didn't get my break till 2012 but I started in 2004 that's yeah it it took I mean that's that was my real break too was probably 2012 like the moment when I got a following definitely around that time like uh, but but I've been. I consider it a breakthrough if you're able to get paid. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely a step. If you've ever made money writing about rap, you've broken through the glass ceiling. Right. So I follow you on Twitter, and earlier today you were kind of uh, discussing like this whole streaming debate. Uh, what are your thoughts on 
you know, that like streaming is sort of a relatively new concept for music. Right. Like with it, with it, it's been going on for a while, but it's like bigger now with the titles and the Apple Music and the Spotify's and the, you know, all of those things. So, uh, basically, what are your thoughts on what a what constitutes sales versus streams? But the thing that I was like talking about today, I guess, was the Kanye numbers don't make any sense, right? Like. They've decided that there's an album equivalent unit, which is like 1,500 streams is one sale. And it's a very confusing metric. Um, yeah, I, I think that it doesn't really make sense. Like, if it was tied to the amount of money that they were worth, uh, that number would be super variable based on, like, how many subscribers the actual service has, right? Like if a subscriber service title has 1 million subscribers and they're paying this amount of money then this many streams is worth this amount of money but if billboard is counting them all as 1500 that doesn't make any sense because apple's doing this much and has this many subscribers and title has this many and soundcloud has this many streams and it just feels like a very arbitrary number to give some order to something that has no order I kind of wish they would just like list how many streams did it get as a number and how many sales did it get as a number digital and how many sales did it get physical and then like the order that stuff is in in Billboard is really kind of an empty measurement anyway at some level like it's obviously kind of silly but at least if they put the raw numbers out there we can determine for ourselves if we think an album with 3 million uh, streams and 40,000 sales is a bigger success than over 20,000 sales and a half a million streams. Or the other way around, you know. More streams and sales, stream, more sales and streams, whichever. The point, like, Kanye's album did all right, actually, if you think about it. had way more streams than the number two album. Because it was only available for streaming. Yeah, it had fewer while. sales. Yeah. On the other hand, without those hard sales, it's not bigger than the number two album. Anyway, it's really complicated. Streaming is the inevitable future of this thing, because at least money is coming into the industry. And I don't know that I necessarily believe that a non-existent music industry is a good music industry. Okay. Or that I don't think that uh, getting rid of like professional publicists, professional A&R people necessarily is better for the artists if artists have to do their own PR have to do their own it, it doesn't make the cream rise to the top like just because you could reach your ideal audience doesn't mean you're going to reach your ideal audience there needs to be somebody there so somebody's going to always be taking advantage of the system in a certain way and if you're a talented artist the money is always going to move in a certain you know to the top so I don't know. It's a complicated system, but I feel like streaming is the inevitable future. I just wish it was more transparent. I think that's the biggest issue is that when, like, publicists come along and try and spin sales in a certain way, they're almost always better just being honest and, and open about what's actually happening. Okay. Uh, so we were just speaking on the idea that once you've made money, you've kind of broken through you know the glass and I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that once you start getting paid 
mm-hmm. you can only complain but so much about like the state of this the state of that like I feel like I try to hold I don't know if you've ever read any of my stuff aside from the, the Vic Spencer uh, interview oh, I sent you yeah. but uh, I feel like I try to hold on to my integrity the best I can but I don't deny that you know my sometimes I feel kind of like my hands are a little dirty even though I don't think I've ever done anything to compromise my integrity my question is what do you what do you make of kind of the direction rap journalism has taken as far as like clickbait and you know site traffic being like kind of almost more important than good journalism and feel free to be as politically correct as you need to (laughs) no I can I mean I think I can be pretty straightforward about it I think Journalism period, like not just music journalism, not just rap journalism, but journalism period is in a terrible spot. Uh, I agree. Because there's no real, uh, it, it's totally reliant on these platforms like Facebook um, to generate money. And a lot of these places are turning to video because they don't see a way to monetize print writing. Um, and yeah, I don't really know. Like, it's such a big problem, and I don't know what the answer to it is. I think that virality. There, there are certain ways in which um, this leveling of the playing field has been good. Uh, obvious ways, like, I mean, look at today. There was uh, accusations with Ian Connor. And yeah. If a woman wants to, um, that's you know, kind claim of the back, beauty of social media, right? And then if if you have something to say. And it seems credible enough, whether it's about a celebrity or, or anything. Right. It'll it'll go viral, kind of almost instantly. Like someone will see it. Can, it can go viral. Yeah. It might not. I mean, that's like. But the, like a rape accusation. That's right. That's almost out the water. And and uh, I mean, Black Lives Matter is all obviously yep. social media driven. And uh, I think that in some ways, publications have become more conscious, although not necessarily always fully dealt with this issue, but they've certainly become more aware, I think editors have become more aware or have been forced to become more aware of the problems of uh, diversity in, in hiring. On the other hand, this is, this is happening right at the time when publications are becoming weaker and weaker, right? Mm-hmm. So like, it's sort of like what you had when, you know, for example, Gary, Indiana or Detroit um we're finally able to elect black leadership right at the time when the tax base was falling out. So you have like the power is only giving up, giving those opportunities right at the moment when those opportunities are becoming less powerful. I feel like uh, is my impression of how things, you know, and I, I don't know, you may correct me if you see it differently, but when right at the time when uh, more voices are being heard publications are becoming lost in the the signals getting lost in the noise there's more noise than ever uh, at some point you need like it ends up in anarchy right like just people trying to shout over each other um, and there has to be some form of as soon as you have a hierarchy there's corruption but as soon as you get rid of a hierarchy there's the, the pendulum swings to a point where nobody's voice can be heard whatsoever, and that there, there, in some ways, uh, there's obviously been a huge, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone would argue at all that Black Lives Matter has been like 
from the perspective an improvement over this previous status quo. At the same time, nothing's actually changed, right? And I think this carries over to all, like, into what we do as, as music journalists, too, that there's, like, there's been little modicum of improvement in certain areas, but that, like, the actual uh, status quo is not... The, the overall positioning of everything has really has not been radically altered, uh, and you see like media has has a lot less power right now than it I think ever has. Artists don't need us. Yeah, they don't need act. We, we don't offer platforms bigger than Kim Kardashian's um, Twitter page. Twitter, yeah, is, is has has bigger reach than most publications. Yeah, and. Someone like even even someone like Yes Jules or like those. I know the name. I don't really pay attention. I just found out about who it is. So or Forty Ounce Van. These these oh, are like man. Don't, these are, don't get me started. These are like personalities basically, yeah. right? And they're brands online. They are as in some ways as strong as publications staffing eighty people. And if, right. once that becomes the case, why does a publication staff eighty people? Why don't they just hire these brands? Like, why don't they just hire Forty Ounce Man? Right, and, and he recently he wrote something. Not wrote, but like he, he gave his the, opinion the on the bank, the bankroll fresh yeah, uh, lists. Yeah, there you so go. like, um, and, and you know, again, it, it's a mixed. I think it's a mixed thing. There's like, in some ways, uh, authority was over invested in these magazines that like just because a bunch of people who managed to work their way into a magazine system said something was true did not make it they, they don't doesn't make them authorities on that subject got it um, right like but at the same time when you have the alternative has become this like sort of toxic personal brand environment I think where who is best at marketing themselves in social media ends up with a, the strongest brand and man I, I suck at marketing myself, and right. I don't. I don't really aspire to market myself. I just try to do the best job I can for my editors and try to be reliable. And right. other than that, I'm I'm stuck at marketing myself, and and it's it's come to a place where it's like you could get a job writing for you know blank website just because you have X number of followers right. that'll read your stuff that'll bring that site traffic. Right. Whether you're a good writer or not, that doesn't matter. And the, that that's the state of uh, that. But uh, leading to my next question, you, you were kind of touching on a couple of uh, racial issues. Would you agree that there's somewhat of a disparity, or maybe even an unfair disparity, with uh, let's just say writers of color, you know, being able to break through, yeah, you know, I mean, to to become semi-professionals or professional freelancers or, you know, the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, that it seems fairly evident that that's true in every profession in America, pretty much, right? Like, I mean, that's employment statistics bear this out. Uh, it, I, I feel almost, I feel pretty ill-equipped to, like, answer how that would work better because I feel like, isn't that part of the problem? Is <laughs> like, looking to a white person to answer that question is sort of you're supposed to you know sort of invert that uh, dynamic a good editor will dig for the 
it, it really is about finding. Um, I don't think that personal brands have totally won this battle or something over people who are you know good, good at their jobs. Uh, it's just that it's a perpetual fight, kind of that you have to to be heard over the voices of. I mean, this is. I think this has probably always been true historically too. Just people with ideas. That, that's really the currency that we're supposed to have is right. Yeah. Right is ideas. If we're, we're if we have a unique perspective on something, if we are creating a narrative that might shape how people perceive an issue. That is where our value lies, and uh, a problem that you end up with is people that are not really bringing anything to the table becoming sort of noise around which it's hard to discern people who know what they're talking about or who are coming from a perspective that is being underrepresented in that discussion. And I guess... um, I kind of, you know, I don't know. I think that one of the big things that needs to happen is people need to pay attention to who actually knows what's going on in certain uh, scenes. And I, I look at like uh, one of the best, one of my favorite bloggers is uh, Scott Brown, who writes about Florida rap okay. sometimes. And he wrote the first thing I ever saw in Kodak Black. And what happened in the you know, he should have. I feel like he should have gotten credit for that. Mm-hmm. That there should be a point at which an editor is like, "Oh, look at that guy who was way ahead of the curve on Kodak Black." And I think he might have had a better shot at that a couple years ago. But now that the social media thing happens, it's not who's first on an artist that matters. It's not who's covering the artist. It's who's maybe who writes the definitive piece that hits right at the moment when everyone cares about Kodak Black. So who wrote the first who the heck is Kodak Black piece after Drake co-signed him suddenly becomes like a voice that gets paid to write about, you know, or the person that's worked their way into the publication to always respond to whatever that whoever Drake co-signed. So it doesn't actually matter anymore if that artist is good or bad or if the person that's writing about it wrote about Kodak Black and has followed that scene that he comes out of, what matters now is that the person has attained a position in a publication where they can be relied on to turn in, on time, a piece about whoever has been co-signed most recently. And that's like, it's hard to be a critical thinker in that environment where you're expected to respond to a trending news wave every day. I don't think that fosters good, like, writing in general. So, I mean, personally, I've kind of opted out of that stuff. I moved out of New York, and I live in Chicago now, and I'm like, I want to write about things that I know, and not things that I, like, have to research on 24 hours' notice, and that I have to, like... I'd like to focus on things that I enjoy writing, and, and that was, like how I found success in the first place now it's I think a lot harder to do that that's a long answer to your question but okay. I don't know if that made sense no uh, it made perfect sense and uh, you, like it's like while you're giving the answers you're kind of always like touching on my next question so kind of <laughs> uh, basically this is something I still kind of struggle with even though I'm a semi-professional mm-hmm. uh, what tips would you have because you, you seem to be uh, fairly accomplished uh, what tips would you have for pitching editors? Um, Striking up like a report. Like basically, if if you are 
kind of introducing yourself to an editor who doesn't know you, who you don't have a relationship with right. yet? How, how does honestly, I don't think I got good at this until I worked full time uh, at Complex. That like okay. I was very bad at pitching before that. Um, which was an okay thing to be. I mean, I mostly had day jobs for most of the 2000s. And it was okay because it meant that I would convince them on my enthusiasm about a subject. I would be like, no, seriously, I've been following this. It's an amazing story. You need to... And, like, at the time, I think editors were more concerned pre-social media with making sure they were getting good, interesting stories. And now they're more concerned with traffic metrics, which require a completely different skill set. I do think that I got a better view of that once I got into Complex um, and I started working there about how to pitch story ideas, which is you need to think about what people are likely to click on. And I think that you also want to uh, think about the audience of the publication, the perspective of the publication, and why it is that you're writing about it in the first place and trying to make all these things overlap like a Venn diagram so that you can really what you need to do is give them a headline the headline is what they want if you're like I want to write this essay it's sort of about this and this and this and it'll touch on this they're not going to be that doesn't work the way it might have at one point now you need to sell them on a headline why is someone going to go on a Facebook post why is someone going to click on this story so like the best example of one that I did that really turned out well and was successful was when I covered Mozzie for Complex. I saw that. I did. The headline uh, was uh, something like the biggest, the, the best run of best run of 2015 from a rapper you've the, never yep. heard or something like that. And the thing that was number one, the curiosity gap. That's the thing that people were really curious about. But number two, which is most important, is that I delivered on it. I think most people really hadn't heard of him. And when you listen to him, you're like, wow, this guy is significantly talented, and he does have an actual devoted following. So it was like, not only did I sell it on a thing that people were curious about, because people think they know everything, I think, when they log onto social media now. They think they've heard of all the rappers they, they're going to hear about, and they not only like created this curiosity gap but it fulfilled it I think for 90% of the readers you know maybe 10% had heard of him or didn't think he was good or but but most of the readers were like oh this is an interesting but that that was definitely something that I think I pitched to them as a headline before I like I didn't I don't think I even described the story I was like there's this all I said was there's a rapper that's really good this will be the headline I've been following him a lot he's the headline is what sold the editor on the piece. And I think you really have to think that way, at least at most current publications. It gets more complex, most current uh, music publications. It gets a lot more complicated when you start trying to get into... Um, once you get out of the internet writing world. And that's something that I don't actually do very much of. So that at a certain point, it becomes about your relationships with editors and what they think you're good at and and that's something that I am not as I don't know I, I'm not that successful like I haven't done that many magazine features or that like that kind of thing I'm probably not good to give advice on um, the other thing that and I, I've said this like I've done a couple interviews recently and I always say this but things change so fast that I don't think that anyone who's been successful can give you a real a to B to C way to make it 
um, things change so fast and people's particular skill sets and backgrounds are so different that like the only real advice you can give is to like figure out something that you will do eight hours a day and not get tired of and like work on that even if it doesn't seem like a thing that might make money I mean figure out how to pay rent but like yep. that that really you're not there's no shortcut to to being to what you're good at like I'm still learning what I'm good at and what I can do for eight hours a day and, and what I am able to do consistently and what I'm actually good at versus what I want to be good at and those are like important things to differentiate I think okay so finally uh, the topic of the day the, the theme of my show is I have I, I interview people but we talk about uh, one of their favorite uh, classic albums or an album sure. they consider classic an album they love uh, so the album you chose was uh, by a group named Avalanches the Avalanches yeah uh, tell me about this album what made you say I want to discuss this on a podcast <laughs> so part of it was I think it's a really unique record and it doesn't it like there are like five different ways I could approach describing it to someone who hasn't heard it the album's called Since I Left You it was recorded in 2001 2000, 2001 something like that uh, came out as a promo first and then was officially released when they couldn't clear all the samples a year later it's four Australians who were DJ producers and they, um, it's such an interesting record because I have like an iffy relationship with instrumental hip hop. Um, I think a lot of it is uh, sort of boring, <laughs> or mainly for like stoners listening in their rooms to atmosphere. I mean, the idea of atmosphere, not the rap group atmosphere. Uh, that kind of down-tempo stuff is not really my thing anymore. Um, you know, I had a moment in college where I went through, like, DJ Shadow is a great artist kind of thing. He's, like, the, the guy you almost have to check out. Like, if you're semi-interested in... Writing? No, uh, instrumental hip-hop. Oh, yeah, yeah. Introducing, that's, like, the, sure, the that's, album. That's, the that's like, the starting point. Like, like, for, like if you ask someone, uh, where do I start with anime, they're going to say... Samurai Champloo or Cowboy Bebop. Right. Those are the first two. But uh, instrumental hip hop, it's all, it, it, always, it all boils down to DJ Shadow That's and true, Yeah. Well, so the thing about Avalanche is I, I got into it thinking of it as an instrumental hip hop album. Because I. It's not actually that, but it, it sort of is, but it's not really. But the, I got into it that way because um, it's like an RJD2 record or a Prefuse 73 record or like those kinds of records it, I was into those at the time they haven't really aged that well for me but or certain songs on them have but mostly I don't really pull them out anymore but the Avalanches I still listen to and part of that is it's actually a lot more complex than, than that suggests um the, uh, another way to approach it, though, not as instrumental hip hop, is as a, as a DJ mix, uh, because it actually does have this crazy ebb and flow to it. It builds and then releases, and builds even higher and then releases, and and it peaks at the end with this crazy dance track, and then ends. And it has this forward motion, this this big narrative to it that most instrumental hip hop albums I don't think have. But they're more concerned with little moving in little circles. This is a like a voyage, a journey, and these guys. I don't think they, they were DJs, like I said, before they were producers. 
DJ Shannon was a DJ, but like he wasn't a DJ in the dance music sense of a DJ. DJ sets and dance music, rather than albums, are the real like driving force of how people think about the music. It's supposed to be like a set from when you're at a party, and the DJ is playing for a group of people who are dancing, and he starts off a little slow, and then he gets faster, or the sounds get bigger, or the the energy level rises and falls, and then rises higher. And, a DJ is always playing with those tensions with his audience. Uh, the avalanches do that on that that album. Um, but there's like there's so many angles to talk about with that record. Uh, uh, you you got a chance to listen to it, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did check it out. There was like some Camp Low samples in there. There was. There's, there's Raekwon is in there. Ray, yep, there was a avalanche Ray rock. Yep. Yeah. Um, there, so there's definitely like bits of hip hop there's at one point Madonna's holiday bass line floats in there um, there's the big single I remember at the time was called Frontier Psychiatrist and it had this really wacky video where they had like people up there reciting the samples from it um, like dressed up as if they were the real people that would have said those things um, the other thing that I really like so it, texturally it's like a DJ mix, like a house music mix that you would have gotten from like Derek Carter, except that instead of being really heavy on the drums, it pulls back on the bass and it's all like treble and mid uh, until the big dance record at the end. But there's a couple others in there, but it's really about the texture rather than the um, the grooves are all there, but they're buried under like. Uh, oceans of sound of, of you hear it's almost like you're tuning it in on a like a radio station you can't quite get to come in all the way and so you end up with like uh, you know there's bird noises and airplanes roaring overhead and there's uh, radio like uh, Jamaican DJ chatter will suddenly come in for a second and then like it, it feels like you're listening to a party through the wall or mm-hmm you're hearing a DJ mix over a radio that you can barely get in or that um, you're listening to, it's like a TV sometimes like you're hearing like soundtrack music and then suddenly it's uh, a dance party there's something very part of the reason I brought it you know we're in LA right now I thought it sounded very uh, tropical it's got a little bit of a beach party vibe to it hasn't been really tropical this week but yeah this is sorry you came to the right now but I don't think yeah, so it, it, it has this really... Uh, anyway, the point of all this is that it, it really transports you to a different place and in a way that makes me feel like I'm fast-forwarding through every party that I've ever been to or every time I've gone out with friends or that, uh, you know, we ended up doing something spontaneous and, and went to a party we didn't expect to go to or... Uh, it's, it just has this real unpredictable energy, and it, it feels like it's going somewhere, though. It's not, like like I said, most instrumental hip-hop albums don't have that feeling okay. to me. They they sort of stay in place, or they're so concerned with the mood, they forget about movement. This is an album that every track takes you to a different, in a, to a different headspace and plays with your expectations of, of how they'd sound. Uh, I don't, yeah. Okay. So uh, if, you, if you had to pick maybe, because uh, some of the songs are longer and some are shorter. Mm-hmm. So if you had to pick two or three songs from the album to play, you know, to introduce my audience uh, to the album, yeah. what would they be? So the first thing I would say is that you, 
you really want to hear the ideal version of it, you want the Zamba 2001 promo, okay. which I think is on YouTube. But there's, there's probably other ways to find it. But the original promo version has all the uncleared samples, and that's the best version to listen to. Okay. Um, although, you know, support the artists and <laughs> buy the album, too. But uh, it... Um, I would say that one of the big records that everyone should hear is uh, A Different Feeling. It's um, maybe a third of the way through the record is A Different Feeling. It's just this really euphoric uh, record. My ex-girlfriend knew the sample, and I don't remember what it is now. But uh, I I used to DJ at this um, small bar in, in Chicago called Danny's. And I would play that. I found like a... They released it as like a 45 just that song uh, and I used to play that there and it would always people love that it's one of those records you could play as a DJ if the crowd was a li- even a little open minded even though they don't know the song at all they'll dance to it because okay. it really kind of it's got this euphoric feeling that kind of takes you into it um, the other big record that I, I completely there's, there's a whole bunch on the album it's like I mean, Front, Frontier Psychiatrist, the single, is definitely the one that feels the most like a single. And is, it's kind of silly, but it, it offers, it's like whimsical, you know? It's kind of a fun, by, by far my favorite moment is right at the, and, and I recommend listening, honestly, front to back, because the way it's located in the track list is super important. But right towards the end of the mix, right, is like the climactic moment of energy in that in the entire album is live at Domino's and it's this song that's just like this incredible driving disco record with this really the groove is crazy and unpredictable and it almost feels like you're on a roller coaster the whole time and they keep playing with different sound effects and samples so that it, it feels like you're on an amusement park ride where you don't know what's going to happen once you go around the corner or like over the hill and suddenly you're looking straight down and it's just got this insane energy to it and it you know I want uh, if there's ever a video of my life at my funeral I'd like it set to a montage of this record okay it's a really exciting thrilling moment and the other thing about it is it's a dance record which a lot of instrumental hip hop is always afraid of dance music it's afraid of like that sort of feminine quote unquote feminized side of, of musical the comfort with uh, I think it's it's a very like instrumental hip hop could be a very white male kind of thing right very anti-dance very mood driven very uh, afraid of its body <laughs> and what works so well about this record compared to most instrumental hip hop I know is that it's way more interested in the party the, the emotion and the things that I think are archetypally associated with uh, women and uh, the tradition of black music in America Uh, you know a lot of dance and that kind of thing and I think it's a much more powerful record because of this it's not afraid to be um, about something
Uh, this is a pretty open-ended question. Uh, what do you look for in the music that you enjoy? That's a very complicated question uh, because I look to be surprised. I would say that's the main thing. I want something that a lot of stuff just sounds like other stuff. And at this point, the thing that most takes me out is a, a sense of surprise about... That said, that doesn't mean it needs to be self-consciously different, in air quotes. It, it, uh, a lot of times, something can surprise you by sounding so much like... You know, I think, I, I think of it like... When I hear a song, I'm like, do I like this because it reminds me of a better song? And sometimes the answer is yes. But then you have to ask another question, which is, but do I like this anyway? And I think it's okay to like something that sounds like another song, as long as you know why. Like, well, maybe it does this differently, or it does this better. I mean, a perfect example is like Puff Daddy's career of swiping old disco records. And I'm like, do I like... Uh, this record because it sounds like the message and it's like yes and it's like well but do I like it for other reasons too sure like there are other reasons that song is great right there's there's an audacity to it that uh, the original doesn't have that's that's like takes it in a different location it moves in a different direction so I, I think you're looking for something that surprises you that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be left field or that it has to be intentionally abrasive or that it has to be difficult again in air quotes but that it uh, for me the most exciting music the trick I think really is strategies on how to find that kind of stuff which those are much more concrete but they're not you can't let them over determine how you find it so if I notice a tendency, for example, of artists who think they're doing like culture clash aesthetics, Diplo, you know, the holotronics thing is all about bringing cultures together. My observation is that people that tend to do that tend to miss the things that make individual scenes work. They tend to ter- take their superficial qualities and ignore the actual dynamics that happen within them. And a lot of that music doesn't work for me for that reason. But I like real difference, not the uh, superficial feeling of difference, if that makes... That's kind of an abstract idea, I guess, but... um, An example, like... I think that scenes really drive um, actual physical communities drive how music sounds and that's where innovation tends to happen and that's where not just innovation but um, a sound's success is maintained and that when you uh, it's okay to take a sound out of that but I think recognizing that the community is the source of innovation and sustaining innovation is an important part of music writing that's really ignored a lot in favor of uh, auteur worship, like assuming that the artist is just a lone genius and it's also lost in favor of celebrity. And the flip side is like celebrity worship. Um, 
I think one of those is coded in in our culture as female and one is male, but they're both both kind of distractions, I think, from how music really develops, which tends to be at a community level. That you have one guy makes a hit record that's big locally, and then another guy hearing that sound wants to make his version of it. We're we're getting there shortly. So, yeah. Okay, uh, let's see here. So you do the... uh on a, on a semi-frequent basis, you do the list for complex of like ten songs that are that are gonna blow. Uh, what are some songs that you could say you were super early on, where you hit it like right on the head, where it was like, okay, this is gonna be huge, and then there's there's been a bunch. Um, I mean, Trap Queen was fairly early on. Okay. Uh, what did I do recently that um, I'm spacing now? There's been a whole bunch of them. The thing is like. It usually takes two or three months, uh, and to me, that column is not really about predicting the future as much as it is championing a broader vision of what music could sound like. Got it. So I try, like, I certainly include like a Rihanna record when that drops if I really like it. Um, especially lately, I've been veering more towards: Do I really like this? And you know, I didn't put Panda on that, but I heard Panda before it was co-signed by Kat before. I heard Panda like I think it's December 2015 but I heard it and I was like this is okay I don't and and we're, we're getting to that show <laughs> alright but I stand by that like and, and that happens all the time because to me the, the more interesting question of whether something's gonna blow up is whether it's worth something to me if it blows up uh, and I think that um I always think about how in the early 2000s, hip-hop had a very, very broad idea of what itself was, like, musically. It, was, it could sound like so many different things. It was maybe the most diverse that it's ever been on, a, on the biggest possible stage. Uh, certainly by 2004, um, you know, I just think about the number of artists and the different styles that were all popular at once. And I miss that era. And I, I sort of, the idea of the column is on the one hand, yes, to provide a guide to people that want to know what music is likely to, you know, be discussed a lot. But it's also to advocate on behalf of stuff that I think is being underrepresented in the bigger picture uh, aesthetically. Okay. So finally, uh, to take it up out of here, I don't want to hold you up uh, much longer. Uh, I'm gonna we're gonna do like a kind of a word association game, but it's like a name association game. All right. Thirty seconds to sixty seconds, just your thoughts. I'm gonna throw some names at you. All right. And I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty outspoken. You follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty outspoken at times. But I'm I'm not gonna comment. I'm not gonna agree. Well, if if I agree, I'll say something. But if I disagree with your thoughts, I'm just gonna let them fly. Okay. So I'm gonna throw names at you and uh, give me your thoughts here. So these are artists. Yeah, artists. Okay. Uh, your your thoughts. Thirty seconds to sixty seconds. All right. Uh, Cupcake. Oh, I love Cupcake. I, I think she's, uh, it's early on in her career, obviously. She's only 18 years old, but I think she's going to be, um, she's extremely talented, and people are going to recognize that in the coming years, I think. Okay, Lil B. Uh, Lil B, I mean, obviously he's been hugely influential, and I think there was a brief period in 2009 area where he made some really good music. Since then, I kind of find the memeing of him annoying, but, uh, you know, he seems like a good guy. <laughs> okay. Uh, Travis Scott. 
not really that into him. Uh, think that, you know, I'm not sure he's going to get much further. Antidote has a great hook. His aesthetic isn't that unique to me. I feel like it's kind of a, what do you call that, uncanny valley from better artists. Okay. Migos. They're good. You can't hate the Migos. They're, I think of them as like pizza. It's like, they're really good. They're hard to hate, but they're also not like, you're never going to be like, this is the best food I've ever had. It's just fun and good. and You can't hate them, but I, I'm not... I would have trouble being like, oh, I love the Migos. Got it. Uh, Lil Yachty. I don't quite get it yet. Uh, I'm curious if there's something there because sometimes he'll do something or have a song where I'm like, actually, that was kind of interesting, but so far, I am not really convinced. I like Lil Yachty because I can understand him. Uh, like he's kind of spun off of other artists or sim- a similar sound to that. Like I have trouble like understanding. Sure. Like his enunciation is pretty pretty clear. Like he's he's rapping. He's not like great, but he's like I get I award him points based off the fact that I clearly understand what he's saying. But I don't have to try hard to to get what he's doing. To me, the the melodies are kind of not my. I, I'm not sure I like them so much. I think musically, I'm. I don't know. It, it feels. I think I almost am more resistant to the fact that we sort of were told he was what we had to like, okay. rather than him having like. You know, he had a hit record that felt pretty standard to me. Like the one night record is catchy and it's good, but in a very like one-dimensional way. And the idea that suddenly we think he's the next big thing off of that feels kind of silly to me. So I'm I'm more like the jury is out. Uh, there are promising things about him, but I, I don't love any of his songs yet. Young Thug. Uh, Young Thug is a great artist. Um, I mean, I've been following him since really early on. He struck out to me as like clearly somebody who was going to be doing some great music and had already done some great music. And um, I think that maybe there's a little bit of a uh, people are kind of rushing him to superstardom a little ahead of schedule, like. You know, if you look at, like, Google Trends, uh, for example, he's still never been as big as Chief Keef was in 2012. Like, nobody is... He's not as famous as people think he is. He's very internet famous. Yes, and and he is real... But he's real world famous. People love those songs. Like, they're... In Chicago, you hear all those records out of windows. He's real world famous, but he's not a superstar yet. He's not... You know, it's not surprising to me that he hasn't been invited to the Grammys yet, really. Okay, uh, quick sidebar. Do you think the... I don't know if it's pretending, but just the the gay shtick by Young Thug. Do you think that's a troll? Do I think it's what? A troll. Like he's trolling. Uh, Like it's clearly shtick. He's either engaged or... I think he's straight. I think he's He's straight, straight. But I think that the... Part of the fun of the Young Thug project is in not really knowing, and that he plays with those. The whole idea with you know uh, gendered behavior is that it's ridiculous. You know, in, in 1900 or whatever, the color blue was for girls and the color pink was for boys, and then it switched sometime in the 1920s. These are all like very arbitrary signals of, of what we are, and that he's playing with that is, I think, a self-awareness of that fact. Um, it is kind of 
trolling, but I'm not mad at. I mean, yeah, it's it's offering a new vision for how people can interact. I think it's generally a positive thing. I think it's it opens the door for a massively successful openly gay rapper to exist. I think the press has been championing that a while, and they don't necessarily always back people who make good music, but. <laughs> But I, I think that it is a. I totally think it's possible. I think that America is not actually as afraid of that as it thinks it is. Patronatic just came out. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Next topic: Gucci Man. Um, Gucci's clearly one of the most influential rappers yep. of the past decade. I think uh, an incredibly underrated lyricist. Um, somebody who really created lanes for people that might not have been able to make, them, like, known they could have them. The Migos, for example, probably. Gucci would always downplay that he was a lyricist. He would always say he's not. And I feel like that was almost a, an argument on his behalf that you don't actually have to be a lyricist to make this work. You, you can make good music and not be a lyricist. Even though he was a very good one, he was offering a framework for artists to make money. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think he was probably my favorite rapper of the past 10 years. Okay. Chief Keith. Chief Keith, uh, spiritually the son of Gucci. Um, I think in the past five years, he's the one that's best carried the torch for that side of the uh, equation. I sort of see it as like a, there's a, always in hip hop, there's kind of a uh, Wayne Gucci dichotomy. Wayne is the best, and Gucci is like the democratic alternative. And Thug and Keefe are kind of like that, and I, I think I am always going to sort of be a to prioritize the Gucci Keefe side of that over the the Wayne Thug side. Just uh, aesthetically, it's more interesting to me. Um, I think it's more captures the core of what hip hop does politically than uh, yeah than anything else. I'm of the opinion that Chief Keith is possibly the most creative person of this generation. Like, there's I think nothing he, he won't try. Like, whether it succeeds or not, he's going to go for it and he's going to put it out. Yeah, no, I and agree. I, I definitely respect that. And, and I think it's it's already showing, you know, that picture went around the other day of the four uh, rappers. It was like, nobody under th over 30 knows who these people yep. are. And it looked like three of them will have baby dreads yep. and uh, do these, you know, mumbling... And, it, and that's not to take anything from any of those artists even except Playboy Cardi who I don't think is that good but, but uh, he's clearly the like aesthetic touchstone for this era much more influential I think than Thug is so far okay. uh, Kanye West I mean Kanye is awesome and uh, I hate reading about him on social media or in articles and I hate the discussion about him and I think that people think things that he does are deeper than they are sometimes and I think sometimes he's deeper than they realize he is but mainly I think he's figured out a really his longevity is well earned uh, his new album to me has great moments more than great songs I think he's doing that on purpose it's not really my preferred way to listen to music but I do think it you know, as I've grown less attached to his music, I think it's become more interesting to talk about and think about. I don't know. I'm from Chicago. I was a huge fan starting with College Dropout or starting with the mixtapes, really. Okay. Starting with even, you know, Blueprint beats. Um, 
and I've always sort of championed him early on, and I think that you can't really take from him that he's a significant figure who opened up a lot of lanes for a lot of artists who may not have felt like they had a place in hip-hop prior. Okay, future. His, oh, and also, though, his, his taste as an A&R sucks. Yeah, I wouldn't go... Yeah, I wouldn't... Right. I don't like his taste as an A&R. Right. Uh, future. Uh, future's great. Um, I think the, the weird media narrative around him is what I find... The, strain, the strangest thing he's an extremely consistent artist um, who I never really get a lot of personality from him the way you do from like a Kiefer Thug and that's sort of held me back from being like the most excited fan of Future but he's extremely consistent and extremely creative in a, in a low key he feels like an introvert to me you know and um the, the way that the media sort of reacts to him is this very weird roller coaster of like he sucks now oh he's like the best artist that's ever lived and I think the truth is always that he's just a solid like 7 to 8 out of 10 artist who occasionally has had a couple 10s occasionally a couple 6s but is mainly just a really consistent I think Evil was is one of his best records uh, and people were shitting at it I think more because of when it came out than the quality of the music inside of it. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's a silly thing, but listen, I, don't, I don't think any reviews have really captured uh, the, the fact of his music quite the way they should, but I don't know. He's great. Okay. Designer. I... I uh, <laughs> it's obviously like a hit song it's good I don't mind hearing it out I don't get like mad when I comes on in the club or something but like it's just there are only I'm getting really frustrated with the amount of runway that we give these like extremely mediocre New York versions of regional sounds that like they get these and it's happening all the time and I like like, how excited can you really be about that record? Right. It's a catchy record, but, like, it's not that interesting. Like, I don't know. It, it just, all, all these, like, and I, I hear them biting this stuff all the time. Like, the Millie, even the Millie Rock, like, that is a total flow and style bite of Beef by Will Reese. Okay. The, and it's, you know, Fuck With Me, You Know I Got It was also that. Right. Like, and, and I, I, at some level, that's how pop music works. People steal stuff, and it's tar- like, but we're not talking about that succeeding because it's a better song. We're talking about it succeeding because of the platform it has and where it's coming from and who's co-signing it. And you know, I, I, New York is totally trend chasing right now. Right. It's a it's a city that is trend chasing. It is not on the cutting edge of hip hop culture right now. And I think I really hope people. We'll start to just admit that <laughs> instead of saying like, you know, I mean, the thing is the artists aren't pretending otherwise. Maybe designer is, but I feel like he's just trolling people honestly. The the most are you know you ask the GS9 kids who they listen to and they all they listen to was Chief Keef. All right. Like there was there was no deception there. Like the the cutting edge of the music is not in New York anymore. And I think. Uh, aside from a couple artists, even Atlanta has sort of fallen off of the center of that conversation. The designer, you know, the song's fine, but 
anyone who pretends to be like extra excited about it to me is like performing for their job like to show that they're down with the kids or something it's kind of corny uh, Jay Electronic I, you know I was kind of excited when he first came out like oh this is interesting he's become incredibly overrated uh, I mean you know he should get his money for it there's, there's like these huge corporations giving him commercials off of one song he released six years ago that's a pretty incredible flex and I I encourage that like you know rob them blind for all I care but uh you know musically I he's he's getting a lot of burn off of like a fairly mildly interesting you got you got to do work at some point like there has to be uh and and, uh you know what, what he's a lot of what he represents and stands for is like important but yeah uh, I can't get that excited about a guy who's not able to put good music out. You know? Okay. Uh, Drake. Uh, I have very, like, mixed feelings about him in general. I think that he's made some really good music. The I have very complicated feelings about the, the ghostwriting thing that mm-hmm. are, like... I think everybody was wrong about it in different ways. <laughs> uh, My thoughts are Drake does not make music for the purists. For the people that care, for the people that were pissed off about that whole right. whatever controversy, I don't know how much Quentin Miller did or didn't write, but for the people that were like pissed and really upset about it, Drake does not make music to please that audience. So... The thing was that he tried to market himself that way, though, you know? Like, yeah, he, he would, you, you know, first name, uh, what is it, last name? Greatest ever. ever yeah, yeah, the greatest ever. But, like, I feel like anybody who knew rap music never thought he was that Right, he's, good, like, he's a good entertainer. He's not... I, to me, the ghostwriting revelation wasn't a real revelation. Okay. Like, I never considered him up with Pac, Big, Jay-Z. Right. Like, he, was, he was... That, and, like, I don't think... If, if you were fooled up until the ghostwriting revelation... Then you probably he wasn't that great, right? He, he never had that unique narrative style that they have. He's above average slightly to me, to, but to he's me, not in the great. I, I kind of feel this way about him, J Cole, and Game. Okay, which is that they all sound like guys that learned to rap when they were grown ups. Okay, like that they that they don't have that like J Cole is a little narrative. better than Game. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying like how good or bad. Oh, like, yeah. I, and I, to be fair, like I, I like nothing was the same. I think that's the best Drake album, and I think he's done some cool stuff musically before. Mm-hmm. I like Hotline Bling even. Like I think that's a good record. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, I again, it's like as a fan of rap music, I'm not that excited by him as an artist, and I think he can be milk toast in his. His taste making is kind of uh, no close to me. Very unconcerned. Like he, he just remixed his new song is like a UK funky record, mm-hmm. but it's so obvious that he's using it as like a a cool point, not not for what it does musically. Mm-hmm. Like the cool thing about that was sort of the syncopation and the grooves on those songs is what makes them unique, and that's what's exciting about that whole sound. But he's not using it that way. He's just using it for its pop appeal and for the fact that it's a, a deep cut that like is cool with cool music listeners. So it becomes this like accent instead of or the way he uses Wizkid. Wizkid is a great vocalist and a really talented star. 
and he uses him as like a little bit of garnish on the edge of the glass. It's not, you don't get the feeling like he actually, as a fan of music, not just as a fan of like rap narrative, musically he's not as interesting as he thinks he is. Got it. That said, he's clearly like an incredibly talented artist and nobody has had a run like that. Okay. Uh, mixed feelings. We're, we're getting to the end here. Six that was more a days. long, that was a long answer. Nope. Sorry. Uh, Kendrick Lamar. I love Kendrick Lamar. Um, you know, obviously a once in a generation talent. Uh, I think his stuff is really. A, I don't know. I mean, he's getting all the acclaim. I think he deserves pretty much all of it. And uh, I guess if I have like a reservation, it's more about the fact that there's a large audience for whom he represents what is good in rap because everything else about rap is bad for them and that bothers me that uh, like why is he you know the, the efforts to legitimize him seem like efforts to differentiate him from the rest of hip hop and uh, I mean he does a lot of that in his music like he like a lot of his lyrics kind of place him like he kind of says like I'm better than the garbage I think he's I don't know that he does that. He's, it's the stories in that are so personal. The best songs that he has are very much about interrogating his personal beliefs and his personal uh, anxieties. So I don't even get so much that he feels an inherent superiority to the genre. Like King Kunta, like a lot of those lyrics are just, you know, I'm at the top of the rap game. I'm better than you know. Well, sure. I mean, but that, that's like the competitive hip hop. Uh, I'm less I'm thinking more of the in the cultural sense of like uh, it's not about him he, he thinks he's a better rapper than lots of people which is true these are people that think that he represents a a moral a moral superior yeah and so hip hop in general like the engine of its economic success the 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 guys that are making money for other people, even for, for us as journalists, the money we make is based in a system that all turns on this, like, these kids who make music, right? And, and they make us money. We make money off of what they do. So, and, and Kendrick is not the, he's not, not only is he not the only one doing this music, but there are artists who make more money for us than him. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and and that that he is use like for example he's using old ideas like musically uh, when he does King Kunta, that's a you know DJ Quick Groove yep right that there there are ways in which uh, this whole system of the hip hop economy is built on what certain artists are doing that is innovative that is bringing something new creatively to the table yeah. and he is in some ways I mean he is a great artist unquestionably he's not the most innovative artist that I've ever heard mm-hmm. and I think that that real economic power is in that innovation and that it's important to recognize hip hop not just as the moral not just for its morally righteous figures but also for the guys that are innovating because that's where a lot of the money is coming from that's where the the entire system turns on that innovation and so I think recognizing that is really important 
and that when we treat Kendrick as this sort of lone figure of righteousness, it undervalues people who should be more highly valued for their contributions to, you know, our economic well-being. Does that make sense? That was a very complicated way of saying it, but... Sure. Uh, Vince Staples. Uh, great interviews. Seems like a good guy. Smart guy. I don't really listen to him that much. His voice isn't... <coughs> excuse me. His vocal style doesn't really, like, grab me. Uh, one of my favorite songs is Gangstar. It's mostly the voice. I love, like, vocal styles that... You know, MC means move the crowd, and I, I don't feel moved by it. Uh, he's got... I mean, he's a, clearly a very smart kid with, like, an important perspective to add, but I... I'm not totally convinced yet that he's someone that's going to be in my life, you know, top five dead or alive okay. anytime uh, soon. But. Okay. Uh, Vic Spencer, he will be out here next week. Uh, I'm planning on interviewing him. I, lo- I love Vic. Uh, he's, uh, you know, I think it's getting more and more important now that, like, there's so many uh, artists that can prove their scalable worth that uh, we make sure not to skip over artists like Vic or like Tree. Well, I feel like MF Doom used to be one of these yeah. too, which is like an artist who has clear creative talent and that pretty much only critics are ever going to be behind. I think it's there are artists that only critics will love. Uh, and, you know, maybe if Vic uh, was breaking when he was 21, this wouldn't be the case. But, you know, he's in his 30s and... He's a clear critical favorite for a reason. Like, he's more talented than a lot of artists who are much more popular than he is. But I think it's important. It's okay that there are critics, artists, critics' favorite artists. And and I just, he sounds like himself, which a lot of people who are much more more successful than him don't. And he knows what he wants to say, and he's really, I think, a creative force and uh, a funny guy. Um... A very outspoken on Twitter. Yes. And uh, I, I really hope that me endorsing him doesn't end up burning bridges with guys that <laughs> so many people get into it with him. But, I, I mean, I believe in the music. I don't necessarily believe in everything he says. But, uh, as a again, as a creative force, he's like nobody else. So. Got it. Uh, Mick Jenkins. I, I, I like Mick as well. Um I'm the new song that just came out that everybody was really into it didn't really do it for me but he's uh, clearly a very principled and smart guy I also really appreciate that he did engage with Vic like that was some hip hop shit and he didn't have to he's the bigger guy he could have like ignored it but I think on some hip hop shit it was dope that he got into it with Vic Um, I think that uh, I'm interested to see what he does next Uh, I'm hoping to hear some like I, I like what he stands for and how he's doing it. I don't. I want to hear some musical evolution and some refinement of sort of the more uh, musical aspect. His writing is really good. I want to hear like more in the, the hooks and the, the musicality of it. I think the people he's working with, like them peoples, like the instrumental crew, have really started to evolve. Uh, at first, they kind of sound like a lesser version of some of the stuff going on in LA or a or a der- not a derivative that's over that's too over the top but I think they've got some room to grow and uh, I'm excited to see 
I think that they're going to really become something if they, uh, you know, stick with it and stay focused. Um, so I'm excited to see what he does next. I, I, I like being surprised by him. So, okay, Chance the Rapper. Chance is about to be a massive superstar, and I mean he's definitely one of the most like the best rappers out right now. Uh, yeah, I mean I don't even have much more to say about him. Like, uh, he's the kind of it's hard to. I'm somebody who likes to poke at what what I think is wrong, like to figure out. I don't like to let myself be blindly, uh, you know, blindly follow things. I like to resist consensus and, and push against. Um, when everyone agrees about something, I tend not to like that. But he's somebody where I'm like, it's not just that he. It's not that he does everything right or that he's placating like different constituencies. He just feels like someone who really followed his his own aesthetic as far as he could and, and isn't trying to please everyone and is positive in a way that is mostly not cloying or I don't know I I, I have very little bad to say about Chance the Rapper I think he's great okay finally uh, Vic Mensa uh, also like Vic a lot I um, the latest stuff has not he's an incredibly talented rapper I feel like he's struggling to find a vision right now for himself you know, he got he was he predated Chance as sort of the backpack Chicago rapper, but um, so is he like clogged into the music pipeline? Or? I, I think he well, he's on Rock Nation, I think. Okay, but I think his biggest problem is figuring out a sound that is going to make him stand apart, and and it, it's it's tough. Like the thing is, if he figures it out, if he gets. If he can figure out a new aesthetic sort of world to exist in, um, I feel like an example of someone who did that really well is Ty Dollarson. That guy had been writing in the industry for years. Yep. And when Beach House came out, it wasn't so much that he had uh, suddenly become talented. It was that he figured out like a nexus of sounds and an image that works for him. And that he could that, that made you feel like you were jumping into his world, and I think Vic has to figure out his beach house, uh, and he'll be he's incredibly talented on the technical level, much like Ty, but hasn't he needs to invite us into his world, and create a sense of place, much like the Avalanches do on their album Since I Left You. To bring it all back, full circle. Yeah. All right, so uh, that about sums up. Anything else you want to say? If I said something stupid on this podcast, uh, I'm just going to hope that you'll edit it out. Okay. And uh, no, no, you can just follow me on Twitter, so many shrimp. Uh, for those of you that listen to this whole thing, thank you. All right, thanks for coming through. All right.